0: Well, good morning to you. It's great to be with you again. Um, If I haven't met you before, my name is Matthew, and it's lovely to be with you you here this morning. Um, And great to join you as you continue your pilgrimage as a church through the Psalms of Ascent, which I hope you know by now, or if you didn't know before, are a series of psalms that pilgrims to Jerusalem would sing as they made one of three annual pilgrimages up to that great city. And I love um, uh, listening to to Johnny's talk, that uh, analogy he made, it's a little bit like a mixtape. These psalms are kind of like a playlist of songs that um, the Jews would sing as they made these pilgrimages. My pilgrimage here this morning started with a bit of a disaster, really. Trying to persuade my kids to come to church didn't really work. They are all on their own pilgrimages. They've been on sleepovers. Oh, dad, I can't get up at that time in the morning. You know, I've been up to three o'clock. So they're not here. There you go. We're a fairly normal family in that sense. We live a life of complaining and moaning and infantile behavior, and that's just the parents. <laughs> My wife works full time. I am planning a church plant in Mosaic. Life is not without its stresses. And as I make this, or as we as a family make this pilgrimage through life together, one particular spiritual discipline has become incredibly important to me. I am, of course, talking about sleep, sleep. I am obsessive about getting sufficient sleep. I'm one of those people I cannot function if I do not get seven hour of Zs or Zs or whatever it is. I need to sleep. I really, really need to sleep. I sleep with eye patches on and earplugs in. I've tried everything. I try to avoid pills, but occasionally I do that as well. But um, just recently, my wife and I were struggling with sleep. We're not getting a lot of sleep, trying to figure out how we could sleep a little better. And we remembered that way back in the day, when we were first married, we used to read to each other a night. We'd choose a book, and we would read it together at night, and that would actually help us to calm down and get us off to sleep. So I said to my wife, or she said to me, I can't remember, why don't we do that again? Why don't we choose a book, and we'll read it together, and that'll help us get off to sleep. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, I've got a book that I really want to read. I read about it online, and I would love to get it. It's called Wave. I said, okay, let's read Wave. So Wave turns up. And WAVE turns out to be an autobiographical story of a Sri Lankan woman who was in Sri Lanka 2005. And some of you will be beginning to twig from the title what this book is about. It was about the tsunami that hit that part of the world in 2005. This woman was there with her British husband, a Sri Lankan woman, was there with her British husband, two children, and both her parents on the beach. The wave came, they tried to run, they managed to get into a jeep, but the wave hit the jeep, picked the jeep up, turned it over, and then she kind of can't really remember what happened, but she just remembers spinning and spinning in something she doesn't even really understand what it is for a while, and then she finally figures out it's water, and finally, finally, she comes to rest in this sort of mud bank, covered from head to foot in mud. But in that tsunami, she has lost both her children, her husband, and both her parents. Not exactly a book to get you off to sleep at night, you might say. But actually, the book is not depressing at all. It's not a depressing book, and the way she writes has this sort of prosaic poetry about it. It's actually a rather beautiful book. And the beauty of the language and the poetry and the thoughts and the ideas that she brings together in this book has this kind of timeless, eternal almost quality. She's not, as far as I can make out, a religious person. But the language itself takes you into this kind of timeless, spaceless, materialist place so that actually reading it is a kind of transformative and uplifting experience and of course the psalms are poetry in fact the psalms are a double art form they are poetry that are meant is meant to be sung if you look through the psalms In whatever version of the Bible you have, you will often see a little subscript under the psalm. And it will say something like, this psalm is according to Shimoneth. What Shimoneth? Shimoneth would probably have been a song like Amazing Grace. A song that everybody would have known. So it's saying, look, use that tune to sing this psalm. Or it will say, in the form of a masculine. That's a kind of form, a shape, a way of singing. Or uh, uh, or it'll say instructions to to sing this psalm uh, with strings or pipes. So there's a very clear instruction that these psalms are not just to be spoken. It's not a prohibition, but not to be spoken. They're to be sung. So you've got this kind of double art form going on, poetry and song. And I want to think a little bit more deeply with you this morning about why that might just be important. That the Psalms are not simply ideas about God set to poetry and music to make those ideas more memorable. Though there is a bit of that going on as well. That the Psalms are actually meant to be transformative of us as we say them, as we even might sing them. They're supposed to have power. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian who lived in the 1930s and well, was working in the 1930s and 40s at a time when the church in Germany was under huge challenge for obvious reasons, said this recognizing that the church has kind of lost the Psalms, we've kind of lost it. Whenever the Psalm or the Psalter, he said, is abandoned that is, the book of Psalms an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power so the Psalms are supposed to have power in our lives and I want to suggest to you that they are meant to form us as followers of Jesus into living Psalms that Jesus himself was a kind of living Psalm and we as followers are meant to be being formed into living Psalms ourselves that was a fairly long introduction Let's pray, and then we'll have a go at this. Father God, I thank you this morning that you are present to us. You are here with us and among us, that ultimately it will be you who teaches us, that it is your spirit that will speak to our hearts. So Father, we just welcome you here. Lord, be our teacher. Be our rabbi this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Johnny said, we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, and as I said a little earlier, they're a group of poems sung as pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem. There's something about these Psalms that are supposed to be uplifting, and literally the journey to Jerusalem would have been, for the vast majority of people, a journey upwards, physically upwards into the mountains. So in this Psalm we read, uh, which Psalm was it? Just checking you're still awake. I knew it was a Psalm, anyway. But as they journey up physically into the mountains, there's a kind of ambivalence in the opening line. I lift my eyes up to the mountains, the psalmist starts. Isn't that beautiful? Well, maybe. Maybe it's beautiful, or maybe it's not. And Derek Kidner, who's a great writer on the psalms, if you ever want to look at a good commentary, look at it for a guy called Derek Kidner, says this. The hills, the mountains, are enigmatic. Does the opening line show an impulse to take refuge in them, like the urge that came on David in Psalm 11 to flee like a bird to the mountains? Or are them hills themselves a menace, the haunt of robbers? A pilgrimage to Jerusalem would not have been a safe activity. It would have been extremely dangerous. There was a good chance that you would have been attacked and robbed. So the psalmist is kind of bringing this illusion that actually this journey, this pilgrimage is not safe. And yet he says, beyond these somewhat ambiguous hills on which perhaps also are the altars of foreign gods, by the way, these ambiguous hills that surround us and perhaps threaten us as we make this Jerusalem uh, journey up to Jerusalem, beyond that is the maker of all things, the maker of the universe. Here in God is living help, primary, personal, wise, and immeasurable. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Could you go anywhere better to get help if you needed it? And then the rest of the psalm leads into this sort of ever-expanding circle of promises. He, God, will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. That is such a typical Jewish depiction of God. Other gods in other religions around them, their gods kind of took time off every so often. But not Israel's God. Israel's God never sleeps, never slumbers. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I have a feeling I have a slightly different translation. doesn't really matter. And listen to what's happening here. You're getting poetry. Now, you might say, it doesn't look like poetry to me. There's not much rhyming going on. Don't see any rhyming there. Is this poetry? Well, Hebrew poetry is not like our poetry. Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. So you get one idea, then you get that idea echoed again. That's how Hebrew poetry works. So he will not let your foot slip. He watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you get the kind of pattern the lord watches over you the lord is your shade at your right hand the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night it's poetry god is lord sovereign over everything night and day the lord the psalm asserts will keep you from all harm What about the wave? I have to admit, and I'm so glad that you have a leader in Johnny who's honest and admits that at times he struggles with the Psalms and with poetry. I massively struggle with this Psalm. What do you mean God will protect you from all harm? If we were to do a little survey around here, I guarantee you there would not be one individual who could say, God has protected me from all harm, or my friends, or my family? Come on, you know that's true, don't you? You can nod your heads. Am I saying something shocking? So, what is the psalmist talking about when he says that God will protect you from all harm? I really wrestle with this. And Johnny mentioned uh, uh, last week that we live in a a somewhat left-brained culture. Do you know what I mean by that? If you are an evolutionist and you study the brains of birds, you will see that they have two hemispheres, like we do, left and right. And the left hemisphere is that part that enables the bird to see a bug on the ground and peck it. It's very linear. It enables your brains to focus and to manipulate something out there. But if it didn't have a right brain that was able to sort of synthetically be aware of what was going on around it, that bird might become somebody else's supper quite quickly. So the left brain is this sort of linear logic language, somewhat simplistically saying part of your mind, and your right brain is this thing that is able to synthesize and hold the whole together. If you didn't have right brains, you would never feel connected to anything or anybody. We are all educated in a left-brain way, me too. I'm probably predominantly right-brained. My fathers and my parents, all of them were artists. I probably should have been educated in a right-brain way, but I got a left-brain education, and I really struggle with this kind of stuff. I was out having, um, um, by a pool on Sunday, and this pool is in a friend's house, uh, a backyard, you know, not a massive house, but an amazing pool, just a beautiful pool. We had a beautiful evening out there. Light was getting dim, and the daughter of this family who's a young woman who's at nursing college, you know, at the end of this perfect evening, my kids have been in the pool, just beautiful. She suddenly turns to me, and she says, Matt, And I think, Johnny, you'll know this, I knew in that instant, instantly, that she was going to ask me a religious question. She says, Matt, how can you, as a Christian, integrate your belief in God with suffering? Oh, end of the perfect evening. I'm thinking, what do I do now? So what I try to do is suppress my left brain tendency to say, okay, I can give you some good logical reasoning as to why there might be suffering in the world. What about the fall or free will arguments? There are plenty of reasonable left brain kinds of arguments. So I kind of suppress that instinct and I say, we've got to go a little bit right brain here. So let's start by asking her questions about where that question about God and suffering might have come from in her, because I guarantee you it wasn't just an abstract idea. She's a nurse or a trainee nurse, so she's learning to be a nurse in a hospital. What happens in hospitals? People suffer. So, she's surrounding it by suffering all day long. So I say, what, what's behind your question? What, what is it that's troubling you? What, That irritated her, and um, so I thought, no, what we've got to do is we've got to allow a little bit of right brain silence in the awkwardness, because silence has this kind of strange way of bringing out of people what's really there. It's not rational, and so we had awkward silence around the table for a while. Now, the conversation went moderately well, but I think there's something in moments like that that should point to what's happening in the Psalms. The Psalms do contain doctrine. Yes, they do. But there is something more about a Psalm. It is not just ideas, left brain ideas, set to poetry and music so that we can remember it and sing it. It is that, but it's more than that. The Psalms are meant to form us and the way we see reality. And in that sense, they're very right-brain kinds of things. They are, in truth, worship. And just as worship, and the worship we uh, uh, did just a little earlier, is supposed to change us, to not just songs to God to please Him, it's supposed to actually transform us. So the Psalms are meant to change us in their performance. As I was really wrestling with this, I turned to my theologian of preference at the moment, N.T. Wright, Who really helped me with this and if you want to look at a really good talk it's an hour long it'll send you off to sleep at night if that's what you want um but it's 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 quite high level stuff um but it's on youtube It's symposium 2012 plenary address praying the psalms it's well worth a look at it if you struggle with these sorts of things and this is what nt wright says he says look jesus had a different way of thinking than you and i He thought differently. His worldview was very different to ours, not because he was ancient and we are modern, but because as modern people, we think in a particular kind of way, which is equally ancient. It's actually been around forever and a day. N.T. Wright calls it Epicureanism. And the basis of that is God is a long way away, separate from the world, and we have to learn to live with that. There may be a God or gods out there, but it's kind of separate from the world, so we just live with that. Whereas Jesus and the Hebrew understanding was of heaven touching earth. A very different way of understanding the world. And what the Psalms are inviting us to do is to live in that crossroads of heaven touching earth. At the crossroads of space, time, and matter. The space where God's space, the one who is in himself eternally secure, and our space eternally insecure, if you're me, intersect. That is what the Psalms are doing. If you think about music, and Johnny was talking about putting on playlists and music tape, what does music do? One of the things that music does is it kind of breaks through time, doesn't it? As you put on a piece of music, it elicits memories from the past. Those memories of the past help you to deal with the present, perhaps, lift your mood, change the way you feel about life. And as your feelings are changed, so your future is now somewhat different. So music has this extraordinary quality of kind of compressing time. It moves you into a timeless space. And as we sing songs, and N.T. Wright uses this example of cathedrals. Have you ever been to a European cathedral? If you haven't, go. They're phenomenal. They're huge, they're vast. Ceiling's three, four times the height of this. Why? Why would you build a building with a ceiling three or four times the height of this? What's the point? Isn't this ceiling high enough? Is this it right for you? Is it good? Why would you build something with a ceiling three or four times the height of this? Because it's supposed to lift you into some kind of conception of the heavenly realities that in worship are coming to meet you. And as you sing words and music, the words and the music go where? Up into the rafters, up into the roof, and echo around there. Time and space are changed. And what about matter? Well, there is one person who has walked to the face of this earth, where we can see that heaven-touching earth Transformation of matter itself. And yes, it's church, and yes, it's Sunday, and of course the answer is, Jesus. You see, the Psalms did not just point forward to Jesus in a kind of predictive way. Here's some predictions about a Messiah who's going to come. Yes, they did do that. It wasn't just that, though. And it's not just that Jesus quoted the Psalms more than anything else as a sort of reference book or a textbook. It's that Jesus himself was a living psalm. In Jesus, the one who was eternally secure, of whom those words we read are utterly true. And as Paul said, referencing a psalm, he is the holy one who will never see decay. Jesus is Eternally safe in the bosom of the eternally good God. Jesus transcends time, space, and matter. And yet, Jesus has entered into our reality where He does what? He suffers with us. Just as the Psalms hold together the eternal, timeless, spaceless, Reality of the goodness and security of God with the cry, oh God, oh God, where are you? It never, the Psalms never try to resolve that for you. They're not going to do that in a left brain linear way. If you try to do that with the Psalms, you will, I promise you, fail. They're not trying to do that because they are holding together two realities. And how could you possibly hold two such extraordinary realities together? Well, of course, only in poetry and song. Something that moves us out of our left brain, linear, logical, into our right brain that is able to understand that we are part of something much greater than ourselves, much greater. And that really is the invitation To us as we read these Psalms, I think. And I remember this, it's the invitation to you, is that if you are in Christ, you already have that eternal security. You already have God in you. We celebrated Pentecost last week, the pouring out of the Spirit, God Himself penetrating His church, and those who believe Him You already have that eternal security. He will not let you be harmed. No sun, no moon, nothing. But you have to live that into the tension of your ordinary complaining, moaning families, (laughs) or whatever else it is. So you are being invited to live out a psalm-like life. How on earth could we do that? Perhaps by reading and singing the psalms and letting them shape and form us. We had a visit from Tim Tennant, who's the president of Asbury Seminary up at Truro last week. His wife, Julie, and he decided to do something much more sensible than reading books last thing at night. They decided they were actually gonna sing the Psalms. Here is a man who has studied all the great um, religious scriptures of the world, of every faith, highly intellectual man, and his very brilliant wife is a great musician, and they said, we're gonna sing the Psalms, sing them not just read them, sing them. And he said to me in a private moment, it has been the most transformative spiritual thing he's ever done. Because the Psalms are shaping him and his worldview. And if you want to go and look and read a little bit more about that, you can go onto psalms.seedbed.com where Asbury Seminary are setting all the Psalms in a way that can be sung. So that's the invitation. And this is what I'll leave you with. The Psalms are an invitation not just for you to look with your left brain training, to mine the text, to look for information and data on God. You can do that if you want. It's not wrong. There is doctrine in there, but they are far more than that. We've got to get a little bit more right-brained. We've got to sing and pray the Psalms. We've got to let them, we've got to perform them, if you will. We've got to let them begin to shape us as the same way that we would allow worship. That's why we worship on Sundays is to shape us so that we can say and sing with confidence with the psalmist, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Amen.